You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. He came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck off the servant of the and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would please please anoint the hearing and preaching of your word. Guide us now as the word of God is handled and preached. May be done so with clarity, may be received with clarity. Oh God, please save those who are lost and perishing. And I pray that um, those who know Christ would be strengthened in their faith and more deeply united and leave with more awe and love for Christ. We pray that we would behold him and how glorious he is this morning and that uh, we would truly meet with God. I would pray that you would guide all of this, Father, that proper application would be made and would be pointed to this perfect Savior of ours. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay. So we're in Matthew 26, as noted, and this is the Passion Week of our Lord. So he's preparing to be crucified, no longer within days, but now crucified within hours. And... He's just had the Last Supper with his disciples. He headed off to Gethsemane, and Judas has already received the 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ, to turn him in. And Christ has prayed in Gethsemane, and it's in Gethsemane, it's during this time of prayer that our Lord yields himself to God, and his his human will is, is completely, fully in submission to God. He rises from prayer in Gethsemane, ready for this moment for which he has been born, and that is his crucifixion. This is now the arrest leading up to his crucifixion, and uh, he, he's ready to do what God has called him to do. He's ready to do what he has been told to do. He is marching is to war, faithfully obeying his father. Now, as we look at Christ's arrest, especially is it is compared 
to everything that is going around, uh, going on around him, we have a peaceful display of manly courage as we behold Jesus. Of course, he's full of faith. He's risen from prayer in Gethsemane, full of faith, yielded to God. And there is a calmness to him now. There, there's a composure. There is, I think the best word to capture all that we see in Christ here is, it's, is he's compared to everything that's happening around him. And there's a lot, as we shall see, is there's courage. He's resolved. There's no backing down. There's no flinching. There's no blinking. He, he's full of calmness and composure before God. His heart is at peace and he is ready to do what his father has called him to do. He's full of courage. Having risen from prayer to God in Gethsemane, he's in full submission to God. And really, Christ emerges from this time of prayer, as I mentioned last week, as a man who cannot be moved. And now as he's at this place where he meets his betrayer, he meets the mob that's angry with him, his disciples start to lose their mind, He's immovable. There's no changing in him. There's no shifting. He, he's focused on the mission, ready to be crucified for our sins, to be the atonement offering for us. So you, you, you meet the betrayer here, pretending to love him. And then you see Peter recklessly flipping out in an act of fleshly folly. And then you see the mob that is worked up against him, ready for him to die. All of these things, the traitor, Peter, the mob. He's undaunted. He's cool. He's calm. He's resolved. He's, he's a man. He's acting like a man here, as a man should act under pressure. He doesn't crack. He's not crumbling. He's ready to do what God has called him to do in this moment. And you should leave this sermon with more love for Christ, more trust in Christ. That's what you should leave this sermon with. You should see Jesus in this text and you should leave with more love for him and more trust in him and you should leave with more awe over who he is, the man Christ Jesus. And with that, I think secondarily, you find in him, as you leave with more love and awe and worship towards him, you find in him an example of how to carry yourself as you Learn to obey God in dark providences. When you're given the opportunity to obey him, and you know that obedience is going to be costly, it's, it could even be deadly, certainly costly, deadly for Christ in this case, this is how you choose obedience. You choose obedience when the whole world capitulates like Christ did. 
There's a calmness. There's a coolness. There's a courage that permeates him. And it ought to be a courage that comes from a heart that is yielded to God, ready to receive whatever the consequence is the Lord gives you for obedience. And Christ's act of obedience here is he's been called of God to die, to atone for our sins. You might find yourself in different situations throughout your life. We know what God expects of us. It's very clear in his law. And as you learn to obey him, you learn that your God instinct has to become as the God instinct of Christ in this moment. That when your hour, when your moment of testing comes, you must be ready. You must be prepared before God to emerge courageously so that you're undaunted by the pressures that come your way. But this text isn't primarily about us. This is about our Lord Jesus. The whole sermon is on the courage of Christ as he enters this dark storm. And his courage is contrasted, number one, with a seditious traitor. Number two, his courage is contrasted with a rash disciple. Number three, his courage is contrasted with an indignant crowd. These are our three points this morning. The courage of Christ contrasted with a seditious traitor. The courage of Christ contrasted with a rash disciple. And the courage of Christ contrasted with an indignant crowd. With all of this, the traitor, the rash disciple, the indignant crowd. Christ operates with courage. And with this courage, you see it come out so clearly. If you take the time to just watch what unfolds here. I'm going to try and paint the picture for you. And I hope you come away as I try to paint this picture for you. I hope you come away loving the Lord more and trusting him more. And with all of this, Christ operates with courage and he maintains a focused, immovable composure. A focused, immovable composure. Let's look first at Christ's courage and the seditious traitor. Christ's courage and the seditious traitor. The first instance, incident that could have thrown him off and would have been easy for him to get off course and for him to lose his focus and become all taken up in emotion is the flagrant double-dealing Judas Iscariot. Judas's sin here is horrendous. It's not just horrendous for the sin, but it's Horrendous for how he's carrying himself. His double dealing and his fakeness is coming out here in a way that is absolutely gaudy. If you could smell it, it would make you, it would make your stomach turn. It's, it's obnoxious. It's horrendous. Let me explain why I'm saying that. I'll walk through this. I really want to highlight how 
disgusting Judah says. And I want you to see how in your face his sin is. In Gethsemane, it's still dark. It's the dark of night. We know there'd be a full moon because it's around the Passover. Uh, we don't know whether there was overcast, so there's no telling how much moonlight they were under. But it was dark. And if there was, a full, if there was not overcast, you would have seen long shadows, or you know how it is when the moon's shining bright. But it says here in verse 47, it says, while he was still speaking, Judas came. Now, the speaking is referring to verse 46. So immediately what he says in verse 46, rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. As soon as he says this, they see Judas coming, just as verse 46 is being said. And the text highlights to us that Judas came, and it says to describe him, he's described as one of the twelve. One of Christ's disciples. So Christ had 12 disciples. He had 12 men that were very close to him. And Judas is one of the 12. And one of the disciples, he is at the head of the gang of thugs. It's a gang of thugs. Judas is leading them. They're with him. Okay? He's not with them. They're with him. He's leading the thugs. One of the twelve. And the thugs, this gang, most think that it's a couple hundred Roman soldiers combined with the temple police plus the rabble. So you have Roman soldiers. There would have been a lot of Roman soldiers in Jerusalem because they're always concerned about uprisings during the Passover. And so there's Roman soldiers to watch out. And they've combined with the Jewish temple police. So here you have Jew and Gentile combining. Wow, they're united to come and get Jesus. And not only is it the Roman soldiers and the, and the police, the Jewish police, but it's the rabble, which is basically a bunch of thugs on the street that they found. People that are angry. So this is a intentionally organized mob with a mob mentality. And some within this organized mob are trained soldiers and some are trained police officers and some are just a bunch of rabble from the street who have learned how to be street fighters. So you've got the soldiers, you've got the police, and you've got the lowest of the low that have come to join them. And John tells us in his gospel that they have torches and lanterns. Here we learn that they have come, not just the, the, the rabble has come, not just this great crowd, as it says, with him a great crowd, but they've come with swords and clubs. Okay? And these men are trained in the use of weapons. So this is 2,000 years ago. This is before the day of Glocks and AR-15s, but this is, that would be a contemporary parallel. You hear sword and clubs, you're like, well, that's not much. Well, yeah, but you couldn't bring a gun to a gunfight then because you didn't have guns. So they had, they had clubs and they had swords. They, they, these were sophisticated men with sophisticated weapons. This was the Roman army, and they're, they're ready to do business, and they know what they're doing. This is, a, this is a highly sophisticated police and military takedown. It actually kind of, you, know, you hear the stuff that's coming out of this freedom convoy in Ottawa, and the takedown at the police did there, and you got the RCMP saying she thought of employing the military in it and everything. And I mean, this is kind of, this is similar, right? You got the police 
trained police officers and trained military coming together, and they're coming together to get Christ, okay? And they've got rabble with them, torches, lanterns, swords, and clubs. And while the disciples should have been praying, as we learned last time, while the disciples should have been praying, they were sleeping. And while the disciples were sleeping, they should have been praying. And while they were sleeping and should have been praying, Judas was organizing this mob. And so the next time you're too tired to pray, just remember this, that while you're too tired to pray, the enemy's working overtime. The enemy was working overtime. Judas wasn't too tired to organize the mob because he was motivated. The problem with the disciples wasn't that they were too tired. The problem is that they weren't motivated enough. So don't forget that. Our enemy doesn't rest. And only a few hours ago, Judas was with Christ and the disciples. Well, here he is. He showed up with a mob behind him. And you can picture Judas. I mean, like, he's been traveling around Jerusalem for a little while now as the, the Passover weeks progressed. And the disciples of Christ with Christ are being perceived by the effete in Jerusalem as a bunch of redneck, backwoods, knuckle-dragger, Neanderthals from Galilee, which was the redneck region of Israel. And so you've got these unsophisticated guys traveling around in Christ, with Christ not getting any respect, and Jesus is just whipping things up against them in the, in the temple with his, with his very pointed preaching, and he's not making any friends. He's making enemies with the things that he's saying. And so you could probably picture Judas watching all of this go down and then, and then now what Judas is doing is he shows up. And there is Jesus with his, you know, 11 disciples from Galilee, with their Galilean accents and fishermen and former militiamen and so on. And here Judas shows up and he's got the lead. He's at the helm of the sophisticated Roman military and highly trained elite temple police force with a few hired thugs. And so you can just watch Judas walk up to Christ like, you know, I've arrived. The peacock feathers are on full display. It's a big deal for him. This backwoods boy from the northern region is now in charge of a little mob that he's whipped up to come after Jesus. His, his ego is inflated by this point in time. And it's dark, so the men wanting Jesus wouldn't be able to recognize him without someone close to Jesus, pointing Jesus out to them. And so Judas is their man, and Judas has given them a code, he's given them a signal, and he's going to reveal Christ to them with a kiss. Verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. And that's not that odd. It would have been normal for men to display faction towards one another in that way, especially between a disciple and his teacher. At that point in time, every culture has its different boundaries, and that was uh, appropriate in that culture. They would have, he would have kissed Jesus, and that's what Judas does. He shows up. He shows up with the chief priests are sent 
by the chief priests and the elders of the people, and he shows up and he kisses Jesus to reveal who Jesus is to this crowd, this gang that he's got with them. And so in verse 49, it says, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, now let's just slow it down for a minute in this passage, because I want you to realize what verse 49 is saying, and I want you to see how brazen and bold and double-dealing Judas is. I want, I want you to see how disgusting of a human being he is. So he walks up to Jesus, and the first thing he says to Jesus in verse 49, he's got this plot in his mind, I'm going to reveal Jesus with a kiss. And the first thing he says about Jesus is, to Jesus is greetings. Now, this is a friendly gesture. It's an expression saying, like, I hope you're happy. I hope life is going well for you. I hope you're having a wonderful evening, Jesus. That's basically what, what greetings means. So you've got Mr. Charming, Mr. Congenial here with his gaudy charisma completely overdone in his friendliness saying, greetings, Jesus. You see how grotesque this is? And not only does he say greetings, but then he says, greetings, rabbi. It's a sign of respect by referring to him with that title, recognizing that he is a teacher, one who is to be respected, a religious leader among him. And so it's gross. And I think actually in Judas's mind at this point, I think it's highly likely that he still thinks he has Jesus deceived. And the reason I think that is because of how overdone this is, and I know for a fact that when people sin, it, it makes their minds go crazy and they don't see reality for what it is. So you, a lot of you look around the world today and you say, how on earth could this stuff be going on that we're watching happen right now? And here's how it can be going on. Because when you're that deep in sin, you don't know the difference between reality and fiction. Reality is whatever some, you know, someone tells you it is. So the reason our world is so crazy is that. But the reason Judas is able to be so self-deceived at this point and so overdone in, in the affection and the respect that he's pretending to show Jesus is because He's so deluded, and you've probably met people like this. I've met people like this. They get so far into it that they don't know they're living in their own twisted fantasy land. To us, it's clown world. But to Judas, this is reality. Greetings, Rabbi. Peacock feathers on hold, full display. Big smile. You know, teeth sparkling in the moonlight. That's Judas. And then what does it say? He kissed him. And like I said, this is a normal display of affection. And a kiss was a common greeting, like a handshake or a hug is now. But, I, I, but there's something that's not coming out in the English text that I have to draw your attention to that comes out in the Greek text. And that is in verse 48 when it says, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. Judas says that. That is the simple Greek word for kiss. It's the stem for the word kiss. It's this very simple, simplest form. But in verse 49, the word for kiss, where it says, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The word there 
describes an actual kiss, but it's the compound word of the earlier word. So it's the earlier word, the simplest form of the word kiss, with something added to it to describe what Judas is doing. And what Judas is doing as he comes to Jesus is he's displaying an overdone form of physical affection to Jesus. Okay? So, so this, is, this is the warmest kiss that you could imagine that is appropriate between disciple and student. Because remember, there's an appropriate form of a kiss in this culture between disciple and student. It's a display of affection. So it would be like, you know, we shake hands on Sunday, and it, but instead of just shaking hands, man, it's a big old handshake, and it's a big old bear hug, and a pat on the back, and a big old I love you, right? It's so over the top. And the Gospels, by the way, as far as I can tell, there's no other recorded instance of a disciple kissing Jesus in any of the Gospels except for Judas right here. Because all of the Gospel writers want us to see that the most elaborate form of um, affection displayed by one, of, by one of the disciples was hypocrisy. It was blatant. It was overdone. It was gaudy. It was disgusting. Not, not for the affection, but for how two-faced it was. For how two-faced it was. That's why it was disgusting. William Hendrickson says, it's a shameless, disgusting quizzling that he's become. A wretched turncoat. And John Trapp makes this point in his commentary. The Puritan John Trapp, he said, The truth hath no such pestilent persecutors as apostates. Sweetest wine maketh the sourest vinegar. And there's a lot of truth to that statement. And you'll find this. If you haven't seen this already, just stick around for a while. I'm sure you'll see it. Is that the most vicious persecutors of the truth are the ones that profess Christ or once professed Christ. They're the worst. They're the, they're the, the most terrible things are done by the people who once or still do profess to be Christians. I've certainly seen that. They're vicious. And the fangs come out and the sheepskin is removed and they show who they really are. And that's Judas. High-handed treason. It's not just a little bit of sneaky rebellion. It's high-handed rebellion. He's flaunting his rebellion with his overdone display of affection towards Jesus Christ. And what am, I, what am I talking about in this sermon again? What I'm doing is I'm contrasting the courage of Jesus Christ and the resolve of Jesus Christ with everything that's going on. And there's so many things that could have shot him off course here. And so I want to get back to that. But in the presence of this nauseating swamp creature, observe the composure of Jesus Christ in verse 50. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Now, that could also be translated as a question. Some do translate it that way. But either way, he's not putting up a fight in the presence of this scumbag. Why? Because he knows this is the will of God. God has ordered him to be taken by these men and go to the cross. There is no resistance in Jesus to this very moment. 
And the reason there's no resistance to it is because Jesus has been specially commanded by God to submit to this so he can go right to the cross. But you and I looking at Judas, man, that, that really makes the hair on the back of our necks stand up and it, and it really makes our foreheads hot. Feel a little hot under the collar when you see people like this, don't you? Who are so overly done in their double-mindedness. This Judas, it's flagrant. Jesus is ready to take it because he knows he's been born for this moment. And, and so his resolve to obey his father is undeterred by this greasy snake. And so they seize him. And he has great courage in the face of this seditious traitor because he has full confidence in God and his heart is fully yielded to God at this particular point in time as he's come out of Gethsemane, ready to rise for the moment for which he's been born, which is make atonement for our sins. That's Christ compared to the traitor, the seditious traitor. You're seeing the character of the Lord shine out as the world's gone mad in this very moment. Let's, let's look a little bit deeper into this text. and Let's see Christ not just compared to the seditious traitor, but let's see Christ compared to the rash disciple. His courage is it's compared to the rash disciple. And so this, this crowd of villains and scoundrels led by the grubby Judas, they, they've put their hands on Christ and most think it's a group of Roman soldiers and temple guards. And verse 50 tells us, Jesus said to them, friends, do what you came to do. Well, they lay their hands on him. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And the reaction to this is first comes from the disciples. So John actually tells us, or, or sorry, the other gospels actually tell us that, that all the disciples started to ask, should we take our swords out now? Right? Because it wasn't just the mob that was armed, it was the disciples. They were all carrying sidearms. And they, they, had, they had swords on them. And so they're like, Jesus, can we go now? Let's fight. Right? And, and Peter actually doesn't even wait for permission to be granted or denied. Peter actually takes out his sword. And becomes violent in verse 51. And behold, one of those who are with Jesus, we know it's Peter from other Gospels, were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Wow. John tells us it was Peter. And the intention when you hear that he, he took out his sword and cut off the man's ear, you, you might have the picture in your head, they took off his sword and just kind of flicked the guy's ear. But that's not what's happened here. If he just kind of flicked the guy's ear, he, there would have been resistance. You take out a sword, and he was, he was going for the kill. Like, he's trying to slice his head in two. The guy ducks, sword grazes his ear. That's what happened. So, Peter's shooting. I mean, he, he's, he's going for the kill here. And this man that, that Peter tried to kill was a high-ranking servant of the high priest. It actually says... And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, in verse 51, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck, not a servant, the servant of the high priest. Okay, definite article. 
which tells us that this was a leading figure, not just in this mob, but this is a leading figure in the temple, a high-ranking servant. So, and, and remember, the high priest is like the equivalent of the Supreme Court justice, and this is like his highest-ranking staff member. And, and, I, yeah, and so Peter tries to kill him right there. He's shooting for the stars, in other words. Now, so picture the scene. Let me describe the scene to you so you can really wrap your mind around what's going on. Hundreds of men have come, have descended on Jesus in this garden. It's the dark of night. They're led by this scoundrel, Judas Iscariot. All of the men are armed. Many of them are police and military. It's dark. Jesus is alone with 11 disciples. He's isolated in an olive grove. There's likely no way out except through the gate that these men have just entered. And one of his disciples, with hundreds of men surrounding Jesus, has just decided to draw his sword and try and chop off one of the leading men's heads. Doesn't that seem like a little bit of a foolish move to you? I mean, these guys could have turned them into dust in a minute. You know, there's a, there's a line between faith and foolishness. This is folly. And, and if Peter does have faith here, it's a misguided faith, and he's operating exclusively in the flesh. And were it not for God's grace, this mob would have erupted and annihilated all of them right there. So the air is tense. The mobs descended on Jesus. Hundreds of them, trained military and police, they're with a hairpin of eruption. And Peter, instead of trying to de-escalate, tries to chop off one of the leading men's heads. So this is what Jesus is faced with, as he's about to go on his mission to the cross. He's got scoundrel Judas there, bold-faced, disgusting hypocrisy. He's got this mob, which I'll talk about in a moment. It's tense. And then he's got his disciples losing their minds. They, they've lost their minds. Like, who does this when you're surrounded like this? And Jesus doesn't get caught up in it, though. He's focused. He's emerged from prayer with a lasered-in obedience to God's perfect plan. God has called him to do something he will do it even if his disciples are going to lose their minds. And so instead of getting caught up in this, he actually tries to settle the disciples down, especially Peter. And, and this is amazing to me because Jesus is so concerned about his plan that in this scene with hundreds of people coming in on him to want him destroyed, the 11 guys that have his back he turns to them and he starts correcting them in front of everybody else because he's so concerned about God's perfect will at this particular point in time. And so the one guys that, I mean, they're operating in the flesh, but they are the group that has his back. And the one, guys that, the one group of guys that have his back, he starts to settle them down. And so he tells Peter to put his weapon away. Jesus said to him, verse 52, put your sword back into its place. And then Jesus gives him some reasons why. And his first reason is, is right there. This is this famous Bible verse. He says, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And the reason Jesus tells him to put his sword back in its place is 
is because, look, Peter, look, you don't have a chance against these guys. If you can draw your sword, they're going to kill you. If you draw the sword, you're going to die by the sword because they're all armed and there's one of you and there's hundreds of them. And they're trained and you're a fisherman. So smarten up. It's a reference to the folly of vigilante justice in this situation is the magistrate has moved in and you've got this small group of men and Peter thinks he's going to take them all on. You know, like they're the three musketeers or something like that, right? This, by the way, is misinterpreted a lot by people. I need to reference this because I don't want this ideology influencing us, but it's this People take this text and they isolate it, especially some Anabaptist groups do, um, to teach pacifism, all right? But that's not what this is teaching, because there's other parts in the Bible where the use of the sword is allowed, in fact, commanded, and where God actually honors it. But it's not in instances of vigilante justice, and especially in an instance where God himself has ordered Christ to die on the cross, and then Peter is rising up in that moment trying to protect Jesus from God's plan, from obeying God's will. So, so this has to be balanced out with other passages. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, right before this happens, uh, Jesus tells his disciples to arm themselves with swords and to carry the sidearms around with them. Evidently, he's concerned that they utilize them or that they have an ability to defend themselves as they travel around the countryside. Okay? John Gill comments on this, and he says the concern here is he was speaking of is private persons using the sword, not in self-defense, but for private revenge. This is the concern. Jesus isn't forbidding self-defense. He's not even forbidding military service or police service. What he's forbidding is revenge, private revenge, especially in a situation that has been ordered. Jesus has been ordered by God to follow through in this, and Peter is trying to get between Jesus and God's will. That's a major problem, but it's absolute foolhardy. 11 men against hundreds of trained Roman military and Jewish special police service. You're going to get killed. And that's what Jesus says. Look, if you, if, you, if you draw the sword, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Well, he gives another reason, and I think this is the most important reason to help us understand the entire thing that's going on, why Jesus tells him to put his sword back in its sheath. The other reason is that Jesus doesn't want to escape. He's not looking to. This is the main, this is the thrust of Jesus rebuking Peter. Not only is this stupid, Peter, like you're going to get yourself killed here, but Jesus doesn't want, to, doesn't want to escape. If he did, he would. And he says it in verse 53. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is saying, look, if I wanted to escape, it's at my disposal to do it. The point is, is this is God's plan. And by the way, Jesus says he has 12,000 legions of angels at his disposal. One legion is 6,000 soldiers plus horsemen. So I don't know how quick you are with math, but multiply 12 times 6,000 plus horsemen. And that's how many angels Jesus has at his disposal. 
And then, and then keep this in your mind. In 2 Kings verse, chapter 19, verse 35, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a night. So, so look, when Jesus is saying, Peter, I want this. This is what I've been born for. And if I didn't want it, I could light up this sky with an army of angels that you've never seen, and they, they turn these guys into vapor. The point is, out of this text, is Jesus is obeying God's will and he's focused. Not only does he have the disciples ready to defend him, but he's got 12 legions of angels ready to defend him if he wants to, but he's so focused on our salvation, he's so focused on becoming the atonement for our sins that he is resolved, he has risen from Gethsemane, that he is the man and this man won't back down. He will obey. He will be about his father's business and duty calls. And so on to the cross, he will go. Beyond that, Jesus, or it's very clear in verse 54, he says, but now, but how should the scriptures be fulfilled that we must, that it, that it must be so? And so Jesus again is emphasizing, look, this is God's plan. This is what's been laid out in Scripture. This is what the Son of God has been commanded to do. God has appointed Christ for this, and he must follow through. There's, he's not looking for a way out, in other words. So, picture the scene, will you? Jesus is about to die. He's about to be crucified. He's going to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. The disciples' adrenaline is pumping with this manufactured courage that they have rushing through their veins. It's not godly courage. It's manufactured. It's in the flesh. They're rashly ready to take on, 11 of them, led by Peter, are rashly ready to take on hundreds of armed and trained soldiers and special policemen. And Jesus maintains his focus. He has emerged from prayer with a job to do. And his job is to die as our atonement sacrifice. And he's courageously resolved. He is the man who will not be moved. And he's not backing down. Notwithstanding the seditious traitor and the rash disciple. I mean, it's pretty easy when, when stuff gets hairy. Like, is it not easy to get caught up in it? Jesus doesn't. He's got this crazy guy, Judas, and now the disciples are losing their mind. And, and he's, no, he's focused. He's courageous. And then beyond Judas and the disciples, you have the crowd. And look at the crowd, the indignant crowd, the crowd. I've already described the crowd a few times, but let me just emphasize how big and dangerous it is. It's the dark of night. They're secluded. They're in an olive grove. Hundreds of soldiers and police officers with rabble. Judas at the helm, thinking he's arrived, right? The torches, the lanterns, the swords, the clubs, they're angry. And now Peter's just lit the place up by attempting to decapitate one of their leaders. He missed and hit his ear. But Jesus sees a captive audience in the crowd. He doesn't just see a group of men that are ready to kill him. He sees a captive audience. And so he takes one more opportunity to point out their sin. He just told Peter to back down. Put the sword in your sheath, Peter. 
And then having now got his disciples under control, now he turns to the crowd and he's got one more thing to say to them before this whole thing goes down. He has a captive audience. And he's going to call them to repentance by pointing out their sin. And he's going to point out a sin that I think is most important and a sin that is not talked enough in the church, and that is the sin of cowardice. Verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. They wouldn't take him in the daytime because they were cowards. We know that. Chapter 26, verse 5, it says, They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. That's why they, wouldn't, they wanted him dead, but they weren't going to do it because they feared the people. Chapter 21, verse 46, something similar happens. It says, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And so Jesus knows this, and in verse 55, he points it out, and he says, look, you had all the opportunity you wanted in the temple. Why didn't you come get me then? He's pointing out their cowardice. And he's showing them that they are unprincipled, weak men who, although they've showed up, hundreds of them with their clubs and swords, trained soldiers, military, whatever, special police, although they've all showed up, they're marshmallows on the inside. What's wrong with you guys? Pathetic. Unlike Jesus, who's principled. He's not moved by other people. He just, he's, he just stays the course. He says it. And he lets them all move. He's a rock. Well, these guys are marshmallows. They're Play-Doh. He's bound with rope and he's in chains. And he's, his captors have come. They've taken him captive. And as the Lutheran commentator R.H. Lenski said, his words are calm and measured without a trace of excitement. But they are keen and cutting. He's going for the target. And he courageously, having offered himself at God, to God's will, he courageously points out the sin of his enemies by trying to bring them to repentance one more time. And unlike the seditious traitor, unlike the rash disciples, unlike the indignant crowd, Jesus is calm, Jesus is composed. Jesus is courageous. He rose from prayer in full submission to the plan of God, at peace with the moment that he was born for, to be crucified and thereby atone for the sins of his people. But unlike Jesus, the disciples haven't been in prayer. They were too tired to pray. The enemy was lurking and planning and plotting in the darkness, and the disciples were sleeping. So, unlike Jesus, who offers himself to the will of God, they don't follow his example, and they don't trust him, but instead, they all flee. They fled. They were taken. They were taken with the emotions of the moment. And they lost. Remember, remember how resolved they were at the Lord's Supper? 
Oh, yes, not I, Lord. Not. Oh, oh, Lord, even if I must, I will die for you. And here in this very moment, look at what it says. It emphasizes again, this is all part of God's plan for Christ in verse 56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then finally, this little section ends with, then all the disciples left him and fled. He's all on his own. The world's gone mad. The Romans have gone crazy. They sent the military after him. The Jews have gone crazy. They sent their special police force after him. Judas has gone crazy. The guy's nuts. Like, look at how he's carrying on here. The disciples are losing their mind. They think they're going to take on hundreds of men with their own strength. And then when it's all said and done, they just all flee. Everyone in the entire world has gone insane but one man. Everybody has crumbled. And there's one man standing. Maybe they were deflated that he told them to sheath their swords. Likely they were terrified of the moment. Certainly they've succumbed to the spiritual darkness that is at hand. But this is absolutely because these men were not spiritually ready for this moment. They slept when they should have been praying. Now he's on his own. And this is the way he would have it. The salvation of the world has come down to the next few moments. And it now rests on the shoulders of one man, the man Jesus Christ. He wasn't moved off course by the seditious traitor. He wasn't moved off course by his rash disciples. He wasn't moved off course by the indignant crowd. And he wasn't moved off course by the cowardly 11 who've now fled. They've all been taken by the forces of darkness. Darkness has now taken over the earth. It's completely fallen. And now he stands alone as the one man with light. And this man is on a mission. And this man is ready for his moment. And he will not be deterred. Don't you see how lovely he is? Don't you see how glorious Christ is? I hope you look at this and you see, not only is he worthy to be followed, not only, not only is he worth standing with, but he can be trusted. When the whole world is like jelly, he's the one who stands. And if anything should come out of this, it's a sense of awe, it's a sense of love, a sense of wonder, a sense of delight in the man, Jesus Christ. And it should be an intensified realization that this is a man I can trust. This is a man that's worth following. This is a man that when everything else is clown world, I want to stand beside. He's worthy. And because he's worthy, you should trust him. You should trust him. Not like the disciples who fled, but you should trust him. Because he's a worthy Savior who shows himself to be trustworthy.
worthy.